On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. What is time? That's a question for philosophers and physicists, and yet it is also an element by which each and every one of us experiences and orders our days and our lives. At this time of year, many of us are making plans and resolutions, treating time as we've been taught, as part taskmaster, part resource, something we could fit everything we want into if only we had the discipline. In his longtime column for The Guardian and books with subtitles like Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, my guest Oliver Berkman has long interrogated the possibilities for absurdity in self-help while also honoring the real and deep human longings it meets. And he himself became a time management and productivity geek. Until one day, sitting on a bench in Brooklyn, he grasped that no one achieves perfect work-life balance, that in the end, even the most privileged of us rarely get around to doing the most important things. Where he went next is the conversation I have with him this hour, deep into a philosophical, spiritual, and practical investigation of all that is truly at stake in what we blithely refer to as time management. This conversation extends an invitation to nothing less than a new relationship with time and our technologies and the power of limits, and thus with our mortality and with life itself. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Oliver Berkman's newest book is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. He grew up in northern England. He was raised, as he says, non-spiritual Quaker on one side of his family and also has a Jewish lineage with a background of narrow escape from the Holocaust. In terms of his early formation around time, he says he relates to an Onion article with the headline, Dad Suggests Arriving at Airport 14 Hours Early. Well, you know, I feel like time management is a very... Is almost a misleading uh, title for this book <laughs> um, that you've written because it really is about great existential questions of meaning. Um, do you think that emerged from that early life? Where where did that come from, or when when how did that start emerging? Well, a long time ago, when I was still at school, I started to be the kind of person who was always looking around for systems of organizing my time. And Mm. I was always the person with the really beautifully designed exam preparation timetables, whether Ah. I actually was any good at the exam preparation is a separate question, but you know, the person with the multicolored felt tip pens and uh, all the rest of that. And I sort of, I mean, you know, I think this, my most more recent work and most recent book is sort of about the disillusionment with this kind of attempt to neatly organize and control time and and life but the sort of more naive attempt to just do it goes back with me Hmm. a very long way and then I ended up writing this column for the Guardian for so many years that it was sort of with me 
Which is how I first found you. Right, right. It was sort of with me while I changed in all sorts of ways. And in many ways, I think it was kind of public, weekly therapy in public in a way. Um, And I sort of went from one kind of person with respect to these kinds of issues uh, and ended up another one. Remind uh, me the title, the the title of the column. It was called, This Column Will Change Your Life. Yeah, right. right. I spent a lot of time explaining to people that this was meant to be sardonic and not incredibly grandiose. Yeah, but you also were, you were writing, you were bringing it into the world in a time in which people started looking for things that promised to change your life, I think with a new fervor, or at least a new uh, openness about it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, I, definitely I was sort of backing into these topics, mm-hmm. partly this might be a Quakery thing. I think it's definitely a British thing, Yeah, maybe a male thing to be kind of uneasy writing about happiness and the reverse of ha- and the opposite of happiness and and questions of meaning that can seem sort of embarrassing for a range of reasons I think and so I was sort of backing into it by writing about it in a sardonic fashion hopefully not a hugely cynical one but mm-hmm. in a way losing my cynicism about it was what marked the experience of right, writing it for right. for so many years becoming more sincere yeah, and here we are. You've written a very <laughs> sincere book. Um, I, I'm just curious about, you know, how do you, if, if I ask you, you know, what is time? How do you start to answer that question now after having delved into this? Oh, I definitely know much less <laughs> what the answer is now than, than when I started. But it's it's one of those things that it's incredibly difficult to pin down once you really focus or try to focus precisely on it. And so, yeah, we, as you say, we, we fall immediately into these kind of resource terminology, yes. this idea yes. that it's something we have and can use well or use badly, yeah. uh, make better use of, sell to somebody, buy from somebody. Yeah. Um, and that is true so far as it goes, but then you run up against all sorts of ways in which you're taking that approach to something that actually isn't really a resource in the same way that money or raw materials is a resource. And we sort of, I anyway, think about time in a spatial metaphor. So the sense of whether I have enough time to get to the end of my to-do list by the end of this week, that's to do with fitting objects inside a container somehow. And none of this is actually (laughs) what time is, right? We don't have it. I don't have five hours to get through my work at a given period. I just I have this one moment and anything could happen in the next one. Yeah. Yeah, we think of it as compartments and they move and it goes forward, which is what Einstein said. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> you, um, what you've, you explore and just name is that so many premises that we kind of just accept collectively and structure not just organizational life or institutional life, but our, you know, our life, our personal lives. These premises just don't hold up to the truth of reality. And so, for example, you know, that if we only managed our time correctly, we could get everything done that we want to get done. Like this notion that we could get on top of things. Right. And this is where, you know... You walk into time management, but you actually unfold um, that 
this is about the meaning of our lives. This is about the big existential questions. And you know, you you write about this feeling that goes deep. The sense that despite all this activity, even the relatively privileged among us rarely get around to doing the right things. I was just really intrigued the more that I managed to get some distance on my own odd and neurotic approaches to trying to manage my time and definitely saw it in other people and read accounts of it, that this effort to achieve mastery, this effort to sort of reach the the state of feeling controlling and secure with respect to time, it's not just that it doesn't work, it's that it seems to do the opposite of of working. Mm. It seems to um, push the things that matter the most further and further over the horizon. So the really sort of a mundane example I give in the book is just that when I was in my early days as a newspaper writer, the better I got at processing tasks and, you know, getting through those lists, the more prone I was to postponing the things that really, really mattered. Because I would fall into this notion of this idea that um, I needed lots of spare time and attention and focus to really do those things well. Yeah. And that in the meantime, the, the diligent thing to do is to get rid of all these little, less important tasks that were tugging at my attention to, you know, clear the decks. Clear the I decks. I think this is so a really deep and important things. metaphor, this the yeah. idea of clearing the decks. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, yeah, I think that you can spend a lifetime clearing the decks because actually what happens is they're never clear. And the act of clearing them causes them to fill up again faster for various yes. reasons. And that way you can just never get around to the things that you know or believe are the most important things. And I began slowly and late to notice that that was exactly what was happening in my life. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, some other truths you tell are just kind of, again, articulating that what we actually know about life is that it's the things that, that that our lives are as much made by the things we couldn't plan for, didn't see coming, that surprised us. I mean, maybe maybe almost completely made up of that. Um, but I think something that you say that really, really is settling in me is that in order to, I don't, you know, let's not say manage our time, but in order to live fully and kind of um, in a more gracious way with time, we actually have to forego not just things that we don't want to do. It's not just saying like, okay, okay, I won't clear my inbox every day, which I do, which is a real problem in my life, right? It's that I won't <laughs> say that. It's not that I get to say that, that I just won't do this thing that I know is stressful, but I do it. It's that we're going to have to say, forego things that we'd actually like to do because you have to make choices about what matters. Yeah, and that, you already are making those choices, right? We already are. We are making we are, those you know, choices. Condemned to choose, as the existentialists say. Um, it's just that we can choose whether to do that consciously or not. Right. There's something in me that persists in thinking that there must be some way to spend as much time as I'd like to, you know, writing, connecting with people, with my young son in personal reflection and meditation, you know, I, but yeah. there's no reason why that should be the case. So you do have to sort of 
go through some kind of a defeat or a surrender, you see what is what is off the table for you in your life, which is ever getting to that sense of really feeling that you did everything that was legitimately calling for your attention. Tippett, and this is On Being, today with journalist Oliver Berkeman. This idea of time and how we use it, what it is, how we use it, it also really ends up being a way into what is a deep spiritual truth at the heart of all the great traditions and also just, you know, the psychology behind them, um, that what we pay attention to and, and also just our understanding of the mind, which is increasingly sophisticated, that what we pay attention to defines us and defines reality for us. And this approach to these questions then it kind of shines a different, it's an interesting nuance of the light that we shine on how the digital world, what the, the digital world right. in, in is as part of human life, um, how the digital world kind of ratchets up kind of these bedrock uh, dilemmas that we're talking about in an existential way. I mean, just even the language of the attention economy or persuasive design, which you talk about in this context. I mean, I wonder if you would kind of, you know, and of course these are phrases I've heard before, but I feel like you are opening them up in in such an interesting new way in this. I mean, there were two points I felt I really wanted to try to make about attention beyond that one, that it just, you know, it is what our life consists of. And one of them, yes, was then how how central this question of attention mining technologies are. But the point that really I think is so important there is that this doesn't just take your attention for the time that you're using it, right? This is what I really began to notice when I got um, most deeply into social media is that it wouldn't just be the hour that you wild away on a social media platform that was changed by that hour. But then like three hours later, I'd be making dinner or at the gym or something. And and in my mind, I would be prosecuting arguments against right. these incredible idiots whose views I'd had to be exposed to earlier in the day. And I mean, that's a strange way to be. <laughs> um, firstly, because it obviously is changing what my attention is on for much longer than that initial hour. And then secondly, because these people... I mean, they probably don't know I exist at all in most yeah. cases that I'm uh, in a sort of state of fury about. Well, you also, you wrote this interesting piece in The Guardian about a certain mindset that has taken hold in this world of limitless media that so many people feel that th- that there's this you know, there used to be this kind of duty of the citizen to, you know, to be informed. That's that's an idea that's been around a long time. 
that, but that was also in a world of scarcity um, and not right. limitlessness, where you know you had to you had to do some work to find the news, and and it wasn't it wasn't constantly being refreshed every five minutes. <laughs> and you you said you know that there's this that that has shifted, and again that we haven't been necessarily this hasn't been necessarily a conscious. Um, intentional of self-aware shift, or and certainly not thinking about the consequences of not just a duty to be informed, but a duty to not turn away from all the information that's out there. And like you say, the belief that we're morally obliged to stay plugged in. I, I really started to notice this, you know, just a few years ago. I guess it was four or five years ago. Um, the way that more and more people I, I knew and certainly people I observed on social media and to some extent myself, um, they, yeah, they'd sort of shifted the center of gravity. You had the sense that they, they saw themselves as primarily existing sort of in the news cycle. And then things like what they did in their house and uh, their family or where they worked and the street they lived on were kind of somehow secondary and that they sort of fundamentally lived in the drama of the news, and I think part of the reason for that is that um, these attentional technologies give us a feeling of in, of acting on it. Even just scrolling yeah. is more active than watching a TV bulletin mm -hmm. and commenting and retweeting and and all the rest of it is obviously significantly more active. And so there's this feeling that you're somehow doing your bit. You're participating. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. it, it's especially difficult because probably nobody who is um, spending their whole day distracted by celebrity gossip is 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 under any illusions that this is somehow some high duty of citizenship in a democracy that they're performing. But I think you very easily can think that when the substance is the drama of national and international mm -hmm. news. Mm -hmm. um, but because there is so much more of it than our attention could ever take up, you know, it might be the case you have to sort of proactively not care about a huge number of very important issues in the world, just so that you can meaningfully care about hmm. one or two of them. Like it might be that you had to do that just in order to consolidate your efficacy. And and that, and that gets back to that point that, you know, each and every one of us, um, to do what we actually mean idealistically when we say manage time, structure our lives in a meaningful way, um, not merely a productive way. We're going to have to not do a lot of things that we would like to do in order to really invest and really be present to um, the things that are going to make our lives worth living and that we're, I don't know, I use this language, you know, that we are specifically called to either mm. by where we are or who we are what our gifts are, or, or just the place and that we find ourselves in and its needs. Uh, yeah, I think that um, it entails this ability to sort of tolerate a kind of anxiety that is built into that situation, right? That is, that actually dissipates a bit if you're willing to tolerate it, but mm -hmm. that is, is this uneasiness of knowing that you are neglecting things that there are people and causes and work projects that have an absolutely legitimate claim on your attention and are not going to get it. Yeah. It's not easy, especially if you've got any form of kind of people-pleasing 
motivation in you, which I, or conflict aversion, which I, I most certainly have. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. You have to sort of pick a fight with with the world in a in a way, <laughs> at least, in order to focus meaningfully on a few things. short break more with Oliver Berkman Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world Fetzer's new study What does spirituality mean to us reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring our relationship to time as a relationship to life itself, and all the implications that has for what we call time management, how we navigate our lives with technology, for example, and the deep importance of limits as much as of possibility. You know, something else that's in- involved in all of this um, that is also just about the strange human condition is, you know, as you said, sure, there are a thousand people creating that, what is it called, persuasive design for my attention on the other end of my devices. But on the other hand, you know, I know some of those people and, you know, they're they're not all evil. And the truth is that um, one of the strange things about us is that we are, we are so distractible, right? It's not just that, I think you say, it's not just that we submit to distraction. We throw ourselves at it so readily, Um there's this mystery that is true, I think, of all of us. Um, I don't know if like people listen to my show and they think that, you know, I sit around thinking big, deep thoughts all the time and only reading books about the meaning of life and don't know how many, you know, <laughs> how many murder mysteries I read. <laughs> that, you know, that even like I'm, I'm, we're all, we are uncomfortable, you say this, we are uncomfortable turning to what matters. Um, and... So it's that collusion, right? It's that collaboration, that collusion with this this aspect of the human condition. Yeah, um, Mary Oliver has this lovely phrase, the intimate interrupter, to refer to this trait inside us that, that wants us to do anything apart from the thing that five minutes ago we knew was the thing that needed our attention and our, and our care. It is mysterious, but I think it can be explained. It's not a coincidence that the things that matter trigger these feelings that we'd rather run away from into the pleasing and numbing and comfortable world of distraction, right? I mean, it's they bring us up against our edge. When I sit down to do a piece of writing, the stakes are high because I care about it and I want it to be good. And I have no control over whether I'm going to prove up to it or whether other people are going to receive it well. So I'm in this familiar human situation of of really caring that things turn out a certain way and realizing that I don't get to say whether they mm-hmm. whether they will and you can by analogy you can see how that would be true of a 
difficult conversation with a partner, say, um, it's really important, but it might turn into a big argument and a fight, or, or it might just leave me feeling emotionally vulnerable and, you know, and it really matters. Um, so things that matter bring us to our limits. And it actually changes that one of the sort of breakthroughs for me in thinking about my own personal struggles with distraction it is not the case that, that you're trying to have a conversation with your spouse, say, and listen to what they're saying, but you're distracted by your phone that you're scroll actually scrolling through under the dinner table where no one can see. Mm. It's that scrolling through your phone under the dinner table where no one can, no one can see is what you do to avoid the discomfort of listening and of the conversation and like nothing is harder than listening i don't think mm. um so it's it's flipped it's not that you want to do one thing and and the the, the nasty technology is and your is phone is getting in the way no it's a rest it's a it's yeah. a sort of eminently forgivable and understandable but ultimately kind of weak-willed mm -hmm. uh, respite from doing what matters in that moment mm -hmm. It's hard to think of anything worth doing that doesn't take kind of effort and patience and that that spirit of surrender. And that's uncomfortable. Those things can be really uncomfortable. I, I think boredom is a really fascinating part of this, mm. if that's Say not too, too contradictory. I mean, uh, it's always really struck me how how aggressive the feeling of, of boredom, but or what we call boredom, but it's really sort of a it's a real kind of serious struggle with reality just implacably <laughs> doing its thing regardless mm. of mm. how much freer you'd like to feel, I think. I mean, if, if that makes any sense. I, I will say I notice in myself and I, I worry about younger generations, although I think they will have resources that I don't have to um, rise to this, that, you know, how easy it is to go down a rabbit hole to fill. There's a phrase, fill time, <laughs> right. which wasn't available in for most of my life. You know, when standing in a line, you were standing in a line. That was it. Maybe you had somebody to talk to. Or you were at the park with the kids. You didn't have your phone to keep you busy or keep you entertained. I have a completely untested theory that impatience in all sorts of physical settings like you know people honking their horns angrily in traffic and people getting furious waiting in line gets worse when those same people are accustomed to not having to wait two seconds for the app to call up the song that they just thought of that they'd like to listen to or one second to mm -hmm. find out what's happening in the world thousands of miles away it makes all the remaining uh, ways in which we don't get to set the pace of reality all the more kind of insulting. I think that the closer technology brings us to the cusp of feeling like we are the gods of our time, the more incredibly offensive it seems <laughs> to be reminded of all the ways in which we still aren't um mm -hmm. so you know you get this utterly bizarre situation where the world speeds up and gets more and more efficient and we have all this technology for saving time and it doesn't make time feel more abundant it makes us feel more impatient which mm -hmm. on the face of it should not be the case so i'm really curious about how all of this you know this research and thinking and 
crafting and you know pondering these ideas like how what are the ways that you live differently or try to live differently um i mean you also have young children yeah does it become more natural if you try if it, you know what changes what's changed for you this topic is compelling to me because i was and to a significant extent remain someone who felt like i needed to get on top of everything otherwise absolutely terrible things would happen who felt that if i didn't get to the end of the day having been productive to a certain level that i never seemed to reach that i hadn't quite justified my yeah, existence, existence yeah. on earth yeah. um and you know i totally recognize that in myself still today but well firstly i think recognizing it is a very big difference it's not that i won't ever get into the sort of frenetic hamster wheel mode of i'm going to work really 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 hard and put all the rest of my life on hold and in a week i'm going to finally have reached the serene paradise of being in touch with and on top of everything i mean i can fall into that but i can see that i'm falling into it and that's usually back away from it and yeah, I think it the, the moments for me where it feels different, although still a struggle, are in those transitional times in the course of a day, right? It's sort of, it's getting up from my desk and switching into full-on parenting mode and mm -hmm. seeing whether I, how much I'm able to sort of not carry a residue of, oh, but I was almost there, you know? I almost, I'd almost completely, mm. you know, reached the position of, perfect productivity and time mastery in my work and now I have to leave it to go and do this I mean that's the bad days the good days are I've done a few important things that matter it was always off the table from the beginning that I would ever get to the end of all the things that matter right. and now I can go and do some things that matter in the family realm I am definitely a bit more uh, at peace with those things because I no longer believe deep down that I'm going to one day get to the point where you've reached the summit and then you can just keep walking along the plateau with no no effort, that you're going to reach the top part of life where there are no problems. Whoever had that's such a, right. such a ridiculous idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> but very, very alluring. Yeah. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with journalist Oliver Berkeman. You also, at regular intervals I mean, in, the, in the writing, you, you will stop and say, this is a relief. It's a relief to know that there will be neglected missed opportunities that there will be losses that that it is it is in the nature of vitality that there is loss and part of this time management mentality that we have is that somehow you can salvage it all that you can somehow make it make it all possible and not have to sacrifice anything um, but you 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 say this is a liberation i really believe this firstly just an incredible relief in seeing that something you had been trying to do and that you thought your sense of self-worth was dependent upon was sort of structurally impossible, logically impossible. Not that you just hadn't quite 
found enough self-discipline or the right techniques mm. or that you were uniquely kind of useless compared to all the good people, but that it's just not part of the human gift to be able to, to reach this kind of position of sort of control and security with respect to time. So that's just a relief because you can stop or ease up on beating yourself up about something that nobody could be expected to do. Yeah. And you also have this wonderful, this notion of kind of the relief of understanding our cosmic insignificance. <laughs> um, say something about that um, and why that is, why that is freeing. This may, to some extent, say unflattering things about me, but I think I'm not alone. Um, a big part of the stress that comes with the deepest questions of what I insist on calling time management, you know, deciding how to use our allotment of time on earth comes from a kind of egocentric focus, really, an idea that it is incredibly important, even on the level of the universe, although we probably wouldn't endorse that explicitly, I think it's sort of there in the emotional pull, that what we decide and whether we make the right decisions and spend our lives in the right way, that it really, really, really matters. There's something incredibly, again, liberating in understanding a little bit more about like just how, just how tiny each of us is in the scheme of things. I think the other thing that this does is it, it sort of reconfigures the definition of what it is to live a meaningful life, right? Obviously, one way you can go with that is into nihilism and say like, well, there's no and point nothing, doing anything. Then it doesn't matter it, at all. If, right. Yeah. But the other way of thinking about that, I think, and I'm working partly here off the work of the philosopher Ido Landau, is to say, why use this definition of meaning that has to have cosmic significance? Why, why burden ourselves with this kind of cruel standard that means that all sorts of things that I think we instinctively know are meaningful is a right. stupid way to spend your life. And right. it's obviously the problem here, I think, is the, is the definition rather than the activities. Yeah. So I think there's really something to be said for, for seeing that. Yeah. I mean, I just want to read some of the lines from um, 4,000 Weeks. And just, I don't think we said this at the beginning. Um, 4,000 Weeks is the length of a life, right? Very approximately. Very approximately. I went for the, I went for the, the headline grabbing but it sounds, figure, but yes. I mean, to put it in that kind of finite term, that's so interesting how that just, you know, just kind of shifts your imagination to think of it rather than 4,000 weeks instead of years. And I think that, you know, we don't get many years of life, yeah. but they seem to last for a long time. Right. So it's in a way it's kind of fine yeah. and we get a huge number of days. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter. We tell ourselves that we can easily waste them, but weeks is a very strange way of putting it. And I think it, that's why I'm drawn to it, you know, because it doesn't feel like you a don't lot. get very many, No, but it's really easy to waste a whole one yeah. without really or to wonder where a <laughs> whole, right. the last six of them went or something right. like that. Yeah. So I want to read something you wrote. So no wonder it comes as a relief to be reminded of your insignificance. 
it's the feeling of realizing that you'd been holding yourself all this time to standards you couldn't reasonably be expected to meet. And this realization isn't merely calming but liberating because once you're no longer burdened by such an unrealistic definition of a life well spent, you're free to consider the possibility that many more things than you'd previously imagined might qualify as meaningful ways to use your finite time. You're free, too, to consider the possibility that many of the things you're already doing with it are more meaningful than you'd supposed, and that until now you'd subconsciously been devaluing them on the grounds that they weren't significant enough. From this new perspective, it becomes possible to see that preparing nutritious meals for your children might matter as much as anything could ever matter, even if you won't be winning any cooking awards or that your novel's worth writing if it moves or entertains a handful of your contemporaries, even though you know you're no Tolstoy, or that virtually any career might be a worthwhile way to spend a working life if it makes things slightly better for those it serves. It's lovely. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm tempted to say I couldn't put it any better myself. Okay, yeah, no, excellent. <laughs> um, I I have this thought experiment that I play that I've that I've played for a long time and it's it's always on my mind right now because we live in this time where everything feels existential and so let's say our species survives and our our descendants look back or you know historian looks back at our moment a hundred years from now like what will they see and it may just be what we were doing or failing to do in terms of owning our our footprint on the planet, it might just be refugees. You know, um, yeah. I'm I'm curious if you, I mean, you've written a lot about conscious. You've written some wonderful things about consciousness as one of the things we're we're grappling with. I mean, I wonder is this something that you think about, or if if I ask you, like, what fascinates you about what might be happening now that we barely heed or pay attention to? That might be what is seen when time becomes history. I really love this. I guess it's a thought experiment that the philosopher Brian McGee used that I mention in the book, where if you sort of imagine a chain of of, of centenarian lives through history, uh, so yes, yeah, you know, um, uh, all the way through history, there have been some people who lived to a hundred, even when life expectancy was much shorter on average. And every day that somebody turned 100, there was a baby being born somewhere. So you could easily imagine these chains of end-to-end 100-year lives. And if you do it that way, you find that like the Renaissance was, what, six, seven lifetimes ago? And um, the time of Jesus, about 20 20. or so lifetimes ago. And the golden age of the pharaohs, 35 lifetimes ago. And the whole of human civilization based on on a conventional definition 60 lifetimes ago it's like it's it's nothing, nothing. Um, and yet we think of these kind of periods right it's like classical antiquity and the middle ages and the renaissance as if they are these kind of huge glacial periods and well firstly i think that's just fascinating because it shows how quick everything has how how fast everything has happened and and how what gets retained from each of those periods feels like these kind of huge timeless or huge slow moving changes and 
would mean very little to the people who lived in in in, in them. almost like it's in, completely alien to us, right? Like disconnected right, right. from us entirely, mm-hmm. right? And yet, as others have pointed out, you know, this will be a, a period as well. Like what we're doing now will be characterized by some some basic single notion, like uh, the Renaissance or the Enlightenment or uh, the Dark Ages or whatever. Um, as to what that will be, I mean, what this is the era of, I just, I don't even know to, how to go about starting to think about that, mm. that, that question for the reasons that you, that you say. I mean, it's like the, the perspective doesn't seem takeable from now. I mean, I think the sort of the not knowing is interesting here. And I, and I use this metaphoric, um, this idea that, you know, we're, we're all in the position of stonemasons working on a cathedral of the kind that like in my hometown of York that, you know, would have taken hundreds of years to build. Most of the people who, who worked on that would have had no expectation of being there for the opening day. You know, it just wasn't the, that wasn't the point. You're just placing a brick <laughs> and yeah. um and another one and another one and having no expectation of of knowing where it's heading um and i think we're all in that situation anyway it's just a question of whether we yeah sort of we don't face, well, face some up of us don't think not. so but we are yeah right um you have this phrase which i think you credit uh a swiss psychologist and scholar of fairy tales marie-louise von franz I'll just read this. Um, She said, There is a strange attitude and feeling that one is not yet in real life. For the time being, one is doing this or that, but whether it is a relationship with a woman or a job, it is not yet what is really wanted. And there is always the fantasy that sometime in the future, the real thing will come about. The one thing dreaded throughout by such a type of man, but I think speaking as a woman, that can happen to us too, is to be bound to anything, whatever. There is a terrific fear of being pinned down, of entering space and time completely, and of being the unique human that one is. That phrase, really that's what we're talking about in this whole conversation, right? Entering space and time completely. (laughs) Yeah, I, I love that passage and this notion that it's going to be later that we have things together and really you know there'll be a moment of truth yeah and that's when we're going to sort of enter into things and it's already not true we're already (laughs) as as here as we're ever going to be yeah but there is that shift that comes from I almost want to say resigning yourself to that fact. Um, there is a sort of inner entering into it that you can choose to do or, or not do. And life just sort of feels a bit like a dress rehearsal until you do. Here's something you write also. Those moments, life shows its imperfection, brokenness, resistance to our plans. And this is, again, just this core observation of of wisdom, of spiritual depth. Such experiences, however welcome, often appear to leave those who undergo them in a new and more honest relationship with time. And then you say, and this is what I think the challenge for our species is, the challenge is whether we might attain at least a little of that same outlook before agonizing loss comes our way. 
Can we grow up enough to make that move without needing to be in a state of utter despair and burnout, I think, is the question. Yeah, and it's parallel, isn't it, to that question of can we hold on to epiphanies from this pandemic period, realizations and shifts in perspective? Can we hold on to these ways of seeing the world once life stumbles back towards something like normal and we're not in that crisis and maybe plenty of people on a personal level will not have gone through a severe crisis so those those perspective shifts will have been had without agonizing loss for at least some or do do these epiphanies and these realizations just just fade unless you've you've really personally suffered i i don't i don't know yes we've got to try <laughs> that, yeah that gets back to we have to train our attention on it right we have to decide to attend to it and know that we will get that we will be distracted anyway, right? But Right. And just to sort of, I don't know, in my own, I feel like the thing that I can easily ask of myself and therefore maybe of other people too is to, is to just sort of keep pushing forward into that mild discomfort. Yeah. Obviously, the, the passage you read comes after writing about people who've gone through tragedies that yeah. are, where discomfort isn't appropriate. But the very mild discomfort that our finitude creates in us is just the discomfort of writing this next paragraph that I'm working on instead of going to social media, um, listening to what the other person is saying instead of just rehearsing what I'm going to say as soon as they've finished talking. Um, Just that mild discomfort. It's the same discomfort, I argue, but in an incredibly mild form. And it is actually doable. Like, you can actually do that and you'll be fine. You can do it multiple times a day and you'll be, you'll be fine every time. So I'm curious, um, this question of what it means to be human is obviously a very large question. And, but I'm, I'm curious about how this, uh, this exploration of the nature of time um, has... Uh, you know, where, where, how has it evolved your sense of what it means to be human? I mean, how right now would you kind of just start to answer that question in, in this light? Uh, wow, it's a it's a big one. Yeah. Um, I I think it is that appreciation for the way in which everything sort of worth doing, everything creative or generative or growth oriented, all the rest of it, that loss is kind of the inevitable flip side of that. So it's that sort of, it's that duality of experience that, you know, it's most obvious in the case of parenting where it's almost a cliche, right? Every new, every new extraordinary thing that a small child does is, is the end of the time Mm -hmm. before that, that, that time. But it, but it occurs in everything all through the, um, day and all through one's work, uh, all through everything, that to do anything is to forego all sorts of other things. And, you know, it doesn't, I'm, this isn't some recipe for making the pain go away, but I experience a sort of amazing drop of my shoulders and all the rest of that whenever I am can recall that, like, this is just built in. This is, like, mm. how it is. Mm. This is not because I didn't find the the sneaky way out of it yet. Um, And if you sort of do this a little bit more, it starts to sort of justify itself as a way of living because you, you do sort of 
have a little bit more faith in things unfolding and mm. then you do it for a few days and you find that things just carried on unfolding and it was okay and then you can sort of ease your way into it and I, I definitely have done that of course it's two steps forward and one step back as uh, those I live with would doubtless testify <laughs> <laughs> Oliver Berkman's most recent book is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. He's also the author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. He also writes and publishes a twice-monthly email newsletter called The Imperfectionist. And you can find the excellent Guardian column he wrote from 2006 to 2020 online. It's titled, This Column Will Change Your Life. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Rodrigo Tuma, Ben Cott, Gautam Shrikashen, Lily Benowitz, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Matt Martinez, and Amy Chatelaine. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.